When I was little, whenever I would stand on my head, whenever I would see my mom do asana, she would always say, you know, I just love doing this because it feels so good. Doesn't that feel so good? And so that was really ingrained in me from as soon as I could form memories that going upside down felt really good. That's my number one benefit is it feels good. And it also is really empowering. Like when you're in your 30s and you didn't stand on your hands as a little kid and then you do it, it's like, wow, I can keep learning. I can keep growing. I can keep gaining new skills. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to this series of episodes with authors of recently published yoga books. If you love books as much as I do, you'll enjoy a peek behind the scenes on why these yoga teachers felt called to write on their specific topic. And I hope you'll feel inspired to choose a few of them to add to your yoga library. This episode is a conversation with Kat Rebar, co-author with Diane Bondi of Yoga Where You Are and author of Yoga Inversions, Your Guide to Going Upside Down. Kat is the former editor-in-chief of Yoga International and was a featured teacher on that platform for many years, teaching classes focused on providing accessible challenges for all levels. Today, Kat teaches yoga, reformer Pilates, and bar classes all over Los Angeles and co-hosts the podcast Dark Side of the Mat with her friend Justine Mastin and husband Kyle Rebar. Let's jump into this conversation with Kat. I'd love to start with your background of when you first started practicing yoga and why you decided to start teaching yoga. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My first memory of yoga is my mom used to always do just a little bit of asana, like from time to time when she would exercise in our living room. And I would always hide around the corner when I was like two or three and wait for her to get into plow pose so I could run in and jump on her back. And she didn't like that very much. (laughs) I couldn't understand why at the time, but now I understand perfectly. And then I remember watching this children's anime on Nickelodeon. It was called The Adventures of the Little Koala. And they had an episode where they were doing yoga and they were doing shoulder stands and plow pose. I thought, oh, that's like what my mom does. That looks so fun. I love doing that. And I tried to teach my grandmother, my dad's mom, who was quite ill at the time. It was at the end of her life. I tried to teach her yoga, and I know it made her smile. So that was kind of my first memory was, okay, I can make somebody happy with yoga, and that's that's lovely. I was really serious about dance when I was a kid and did competitive cheer, and, you know, it was very athletic. I learned later in life that I have... ADHD, including the hyperactive type. And a lot of my friends who I danced with and cheered with did too. And it was kind of just like that was our outlet. That was our chance to get to move around and to feel successful at things. And when I tried yoga more seriously when I was a senior in high school, that's what I found. Like I felt it was something where I felt successful. I felt good at it right away. And when you know necessarily struggle with some other things struggle with sitting still and don't always feel like you're the best at everything and just getting that positive reinforcement and positive feedback was really good for me and kept me at it actually i was in a classical ballet program in college at the time 
and I started teaching Pilates at my college. And then I started taking more yoga. And eventually I did like a, you know, weekend yoga fit workshop to get quote unquote certified to teach yoga classes at my college and then started teaching at the local YMCA. And the teachers there were Anisara teachers. I really liked those teachers and I thought I wanna teach like them, but I couldn't afford the Anisara 200 hour training. So I started looking around at other trainings in my area and visited different studios and talked to different teachers and met this teacher, Karina Mursky, who I still adore. And at the time she was a para yoga teacher. She doesn't teach that style anymore. But I remember just finding some connections with the philosophy that resonated with me from Anisara. And I really enjoyed practicing with her. So I did that training. And then she was at the time on faculty at the Himalayan Institute. And I'm like, you know, 21, 22. I have no idea what I'm gonna do. I left the college ballet program after my sophomore year for financial reasons and just, you know, was teaching fitness classes and yoga was like the thing that really spoke to me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go live at the Himalayan Institute, which I did <laughs> for a few years. Um, and while I was there, I did more teacher trainings. I would go into New York to actually do the Anisara trainings kind of bit by bit and chip away at those. I did the trainings at the Himalayan Institute. I started teaching regular yoga classes there. And the work that I did there was for the print magazine, which at the time was Yoga Plus Joyful Living. And I had some really great mentors who knew a lot about editing and they kind of took me under their wing and taught me how to edit articles. And I'm really grateful for that because that's a skill that I probably wouldn't have you know, gained without that. I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon a few years later, teaching like 20 plus classes a week, working at my local Athleta, going to school there, trying to finish up my degree, and then was just really burned out. So when I got a call from Yoga International, saying which Yoga Plus Joyful Living became, that was actually their original name, and then they went back. They mentioned that they were not printing the magazine anymore, they were going to be an online platform and wanted to know if I wanted to come on as editor-in-chief. And the idea of a full-time job, a nine-to-five, where I would have actual weekends and actual maybe like a holiday off or something sounded incredible. So I moved from Portland to the small town where they were in Pennsylvania. And that's actually where I met my husband and we ended up moving out here to Los Angeles. And kind of ironically, now I'm right back to teaching like 20, 30 yoga classes a week and working seven days a week with no days off. So that's, it's kind of funny how 10 years later, life circles right back to that. But yeah, that's kind of the story. And what about inversions? When did you develop a passion for inversions? So it's interesting because I know a lot of yoga teachers are former dancers, former gymnasts, former cheerleaders. And even though I was a dancer and did competitive cheer, I never really did inversions. I couldn't do handstand when I was a kid. I mean, I loved, you know, the quote unquote simpler ones like shoulder stand and headstand, but it, that wasn't something I did regularly just for fun with my friends outside. And then I remember I had a yoga journal DVD when I was in college and it was three DVDs. And the third one introduced handstand. And so I thought, okay, I'll try that. 
and I banged really hard into my closet when I hopped up, but I did it and I thought it was really fun. And for years after that, when I would take yoga classes, we would always do handstands at the wall. And I was like, okay, I can come up at the wall. That's great. I never in my entire life thought that I'd be able to do a forearm stand, let alone a handstand in the middle of the room. But one year I decided I was having a really hard year. It was when I was living in Portland that I just wanted a goal. I wanted to do something. So I thought I'm gonna learn how to do a handstand in the middle of the room. So you're just kind of looking up different resources online because that wasn't, I always thought it was interesting that in yoga classes, it was always like, do a handstand here if you want, but they never really taught us how to do them. It was just like, if you can do it, great. Otherwise it's the wall forever. And so I started looking up these different resources and trial and error, figuring out what worked, what didn't. I fell over into a lot of backbends along the way. And um, then eventually one day, all at once, everything kind of seemed to come together and I really enjoyed building and building. And I started putting in, you know, just some little drills, some little tips, some little things that helped me in the classes that I would teach. And depending on, you know, the class and the population and everything, sometimes it would be something really simple that wouldn't even look like an inversion. And other times it was like, okay, if you wanna do some jump switches and take them into handstand hops, or if you wanna work toward a press this way, this is where you do it, this is how you do it. And it was just really cool to see other people kind of light up when like, oh my God, I never thought I could do this because I didn't do it when I was a kid, but then they did. So do you have any particular teachers who were influential in helping you with this or would you say you're more self-taught? The first thing that comes to mind is when I was in Portland, I was teaching at a studio called Heart Song Yoga at the time. And the owner of that studio then, her name was Leslie Ellis. She, I used to, she was such a great teacher, is such a great teacher. I just don't live in Portland anymore. But I used to come to her classes pretty regularly. And I remember she started teaching like a headless headstand. Maybe some listeners know this variation. There's the one where you have the three blocks stacked against a wall and it's kind of like a, maybe like a forearm stand-ish variation and only your head isn't touching the ground. And so all of a sudden I could do that with my feet off the wall. And that sort of kind of made a little light bulb go off like, oh, I can balance with my feet off the wall. Then after that, pretty soon after, I was taking a lot of workshops with Doug Keller and he would teach a different headless headstand variation involving blocks that was, I guess that one was a little bit more forearm standy. And that was the first time where I really felt, wow, I can maybe do a forearm stand in the middle of the room. That's so cool. So I think that's what kind of sparked that. But then from there, it was more, I think, self-taught, more just kind of like looking up a video here and there, looking at, you know, an article, a resource here and there, and and kind of trying to see what fits. That sounds like such a fun project. I know that a lot of people resist doing inversions. I think there's a lot of myths out there about them. And you go over some of those myths in your book. I was wondering if we could go through a few of the more common misunderstandings that people might have about inversions that might keep them away. Oh, absolutely. I love to talk about that. So the first one is that inversions are advanced and that you have to be advanced or have an advanced practice or have a certain type of body to practice inversions. When we see inversions depicted in yoga-related media, 
it usually is something wild, you know, like you see, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you worked hard to learn a one-handed handstand, then great, awesome. But there are so many more inversions than one-handed handstands and so many reasons to do them other than doing like the most advanced variation ever. And, you know, people love to debate in yoga. And I said in the book, like, I don't even want to get into this. Just people have different opinions. It's fine. Like, what even is an inversion? In some schools, it's anything where your head's below your heart. So forward bend would be an inversion. And, you know, other schools, they might say, well, an inversion is something that you can hold for one minute or longer with both feet in the air. So uh, even a downward dog wouldn't count in that regard. And I guess I don't really care how we categorize it. But with everything, and what I try to do with everything in the book is kind of look at the why, look at the benefits, look at the purpose, why might you do this? And if there's a particular reason why, you know, you might not or why it might be contraindicated, how can you still get those same benefits in a different way? And a great help with that actually is one of the models in the book was my cousin Sarah. And she's very athletic, but she's not a yoga person, does not like yoga, but she was kind enough to be one of my models because I wanted to show people that it's not just yoga teachers. It's not just people who even have been doing yoga for a long time who can do inversions. And when it came time to do the photo shoot, she said, oh, by the way, I can't have my head below my heart. I can't do inversions because of a heart condition. Is that okay? And I think she didn't know the book was about inversions, that it, she thought it was just about yoga. And I thought, well, of course, yes. You know, and that's going to be a little bit of a challenge, but that's what this whole book is about. It's about making customizing in that way. So a lot of the poses we did, we worked with them in a way where she had a neutral spine or where like even for like a chair supported down dog where her spine was long instead of having her head below her heart. And then, you know, I demoed the other version and we looked at lots of different ways that she could kind of get the similar benefits for the poses. And that was a really fun challenge. And I was really glad in the end that arose. So you talk about some of the benefits or the reasons for doing inversions. Can you go into some of those for yourself and for the people that you work with? Yeah, there are actually a lot of myths about these two, or I don't even know if I want to call them myths, but just maybe just like exaggerations. I think it's gotten a little better, but when I was writing the book, just out of curiosity, I would Google like benefits of blank, just, you know, to see, did I miss something or what do I need to look into a little further? And it would be like benefits of shoulder stand can cure diabetes. Like, oh my God, no, <laughs> it cannot. <laughs> Incorrect. Those things are not a reason necessarily to go into inversions. But for me, I go back to my mom. And when I was little, whenever I would stand on my head, whenever I would see my mom do stretching or do asana in any way, she would always say, you know, I just love doing this because it feels so good. Doesn't that feel so good? She's like, don't you think that feels amazing? And so that was really ingrained in me from, you know, as soon as I could form memories that going upside down felt really good. And I didn't need to have any scientific studies to back that up because I experienced that in my own body from the time I was really little. So I think for me, that's kind of like my number one benefit is it feels good. And it also is really empowering. Like when you're in your 30s and you didn't stand on your hands as a little kid and then you do it, it's like, wow, I can keep learning, I can keep growing, I can keep gaining new skills. 
Another thing I hear again and again, and this is just anecdotal, it's my experience and the experience of a lot of folks I work with too, is that it is a really nice perspective shift. Like often if I'm just feeling like sluggish or if I'm feeling uninspired or just kind of like getting that midday slump, which I often get, I'll do a handstand real quick or do, you know, forearm stand or go upside down in some way. And then sure enough, I feel better. Like, wow, that was an amazing shift. So that's really cool. For performers, for athletes, it can also be, inversions can also be a really great way to build skills in that regard. A lot of people who come to my classes and that I work with one-on-one, including my husband, are really into CrossFit and do CrossFit competitions. And uh, inversions, particularly handstands, are really big there. And a lot of times people might, you know, need just a little bit of help kind of honing their skills in order to make something a little bit more effortless and a little bit safer. And by safer, I don't mean like, you know, yoga is inherently dangerous because I really don't think it is. I think that gets kind of exaggerated a lot. But I mean, like literally, so you're not going to crash into someone or so you're not going to fall off of something or into something to get a little bit more control. So I would say the physical benefits, you know, are subjective and debated and maybe not as grand as some people like to say, but the mental, the psychological and the social benefits are really the main ones that I keep seeing again and again. So back to the myths, one is that people who are menstruating shouldn't do inversions. That's somehow dangerous. Did you look into that for the book? And what did you find as far as like evidence-based information about it? Yeah, um, I did look into it separately for the book, but I had also done um, quite a bit of fact-checking in regard to that just when I was working with Yoga International because people would write articles about that. So it was something that was already kind of on the forefront of my mind. And I think... It's a complicated topic that's rooted in a lot of misogyny and also a lot of misunderstanding. I think about maybe why traditionally in yoga you might not do an inversion. And, you know, it, a lot of that has to do with the pranavayu and a pranavayu and associating that with menstruation, which, if that's somebody's belief, if that's somebody's part of their tradition, then, you know, great. You don't have to do an inversion when you're menstruating. You know, no one ever has to do an inversion for any reason if they don't want to. Like, up to you. As a yoga teacher, you know, I want to make sure that I'm very clear that everyone has that autonomy. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But if you want to invert and you don't have any contraindications for whatever the particular inversion might be otherwise, there's just no real solid evidence. There's a lot of really good, you know, articles that kind of break it down out there. I know a couple years ago there was one, I think it was Slate actually. Slate had a really good kind of breakdown that I enjoyed sharing with people. Um, they talked about all of the other con- contexts where people who are menstruating go upside down. Like for example, being in outer space if they're an astronaut or if they're a gymnast. You know, nobody ever tells gymnasts can't do a handstand when you're menstruating. Like that just doesn't happen. And a lot of what folks kind of used to think was that it could, I think there was one paper and I'm not 100% sure that this is absolutely correct because it's off the top of my head. But there was one paper 
that might have like suggested like in the early 80s, something like that, that inverting could lead to endometriosis. And that was proven false by numerous other, I mean, I don't want to say proven because you can't really, it was shown likely to not be the case by lots of other follow-ups. And so that was kind of um, a myth that tended to persist. I do know people who have that condition who have said, it just doesn't feel good in my body to invert, you know, when I'm menstruating, it makes it worse. I know other people who say, I feel so much better when I do. So again, it's having that autonomy that it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. It's, it depends on so many intersecting factors, but also, you know, when I'm doing a handstand and I keep going back to handstands cause that's what I like to do the most, but I'm doing a forearm stand, I'm doing whatever. I'm not there for like, a half hour, I'm just going upside down for a couple seconds, you know, up 30 seconds at most. And the rest of the time I'm right side up. So that's, you know, it's pretty negligible as far as that goes. Yeah, but just really kind of trying to look and see, is there a reason not to do this? From a physiological point of view, you know, I talked to OBGYNs and midwives about this during the fact-checking process, and they're just like, yeah, no, it's fine. And what about pregnancy? Yeah, again, that's like a really individual thing. And I was taught a lot of different things in my trainings. I remember one time I was in a training and they said, just don't do inversions during like weeks 12, 13, because that's when the placenta is adhering to the uterus. At least that's what I wrote in my notes. And so I said that in a class one day and my friend came up to me and she's like, my dad has been an OBGYN for years. And I asked him about that and he said, that is not true. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, okay. And I looked into it and I was like, yeah, okay. That's not really true for, okay, cool. So it's just, you take things that you hear and you repeat them without really looking into them. And then you realize, no, that's not the case. So yeah, during pregnancy, I mean, again, if it feels good in your body, if you don't have a contraindication from your medical provider, and if you're not sure, ask, you're probably okay. Of course, when you get to, you know, the later stages of pregnancy, it might not feel good. It might feel weird. Your center of gravity might be off or maybe earlier, it might make you feel nauseous. And it just depends. Other people say it can feel really good. It's a relief. I mean, I kind of retired from teaching prenatal yoga. I would say that used to be something that I really specialized in and I did a lot, but these days it's not my main source of interest. So I don't as much. But if I were teaching a dedicated prenatal class, I probably wouldn't say, okay, everybody, we're going to do headstands today. But if somebody like, you know, popped into a headstand and they were strong and stable and feeling good, I wouldn't freak out about it. I'd just be like, wow, cool. That's amazing. You're awesome. And then, of course, a lot of, I always forget too that I went to midwifery college for like a semester when people, actually one of my bosses, um, she was reading my book and she saw that in there and she's like, Kat, you went to midwifery school? And I was like, oh yeah, I did, I forgot. <laughs> but just, I, I did a, a doula program for like, um, I think it was nine months, ironically, maybe not ironically there, but you know, like a, about nine months there in that program. And I didn't do it to become a doula, but just to kind of learn more about pregnant bodies because I knew that I never wanted to have kids, but that there were lots of people who would be pregnant coming into my classes. And 
I wanted to know more about them and you know how I could serve them better as a teacher. And I know inversions are often used therapeutically near the later stages of pregnancy, especially if a baby's breech and needs to flip. Actually, I was upside down from the very beginning. My mom tells me that all the time. And she's like, yeah, no wonder if that's what you do for a living now. But again, that's outside the scope of practice of a yoga teacher. I would never, you know, tell someone who came in and said, hey, I'm, you know, eight and a half months pregnant. My baby's breech, it needs to flip. I wouldn't say, okay, great, let's do forearm stands now. Like I would just say, talk to your medical provider. But there are certainly reasons why a birth worker or a physician might have someone do inversions during that time specifically. It's so interesting, isn't it, how sometimes concepts are presented in teacher training so confidently and as fact, and it can be very disheartening later on to realize, wow, they didn't know what they were talking about. So now I have to question everything that I learned in teacher training and examine it and say, how factual was this? Exactly. Yeah. And there is a lot of that I've, I've kind of come back to over time. I do feel really grateful for a lot of the teachers, two of them that I mentioned, Karina and Leslie in particular, who are always very open to conversation around all those topics. Like, well, often you hear this, but that might not actually be true. It might not be true for everyone. We need more research about that. And I really appreciate that. And as a teacher, I try to go in with the same approach that, you know, there's so much that I don't know. And I try to be careful that just because I heard something, especially, you know, having had those moments where someone's like, actually, that's not really true. I'm like, oh, huh. I don't really know that. I was just repeating what someone else said. Cool. That, you know, to hopefully be really open-minded and keep questioning and keep learning. Yeah. I think a lot of times we want certainty and we think that certainty of knowledge is going to give us confidence as a teacher. But what I actually find is that the most confident teachers out there hold what they know more loosely. And they really just show up fully for the people in the room, sharing their experience, sharing what they know without needing to be right about it, being okay, being questioned about it, and being open to changing their minds if evidence is presented, other evidence is presented. Those to me are the teachers that I want to learn from. They're the people that I respect. And it's just so interesting to see there's this that there's this weird disconnect where people want the certainty and they think it's going to give them a certain result, but it doesn't exist. That's the problem. It's like a mirage. The certainty is a mirage and it's a red flag for me these days. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's very true. Very well said. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because I know I started teaching yoga very young, like probably way too young. And I was like, I had no business teaching yoga, (laughs) but you know, that's how you learn, you grow as like a teenager. And I remember feeling very self-conscious about being so young. So I just thought I need to know everything. I need to learn everything I can. I need to learn how to read Sanskrit. I need to learn everything about anatomy. I would, during my lunch break, I would, oh, let me, mute those notifications there. Sorry about that. During my lunch break, 
I would just like go into my office with this little anatomy book and I would memorize all of the attachments and all of the insertion points and in all the functions of every skeletal muscle, you know, just like because I wanted to be able to say that in class and to say that confidently. But now I'm so much more comfortable not knowing things, so much more comfortable making mistakes, being open to making mistakes and not feeling like a failure if I do. And a lot of that just kind of comes, like you said, like the more confident you are as a teacher, the more open you probably are to admitting there's so much you don't know. Absolutely. And with that, I think comes opening your perspective to other modalities as well. Can you talk a bit about which other modalities you've turned to that have influenced your inversion specifically? Yeah, absolutely. One in particular is I recently started teaching reformer Pilates, which more in kind of like a Legree style, which is something I'd enjoyed taking for a long time. And there's so much that you do there that like, wow, if only we had this machine in a yoga studio, it'd, be, it'd go so much faster learning, you know, all of these skills with those tools and that support. So that's something that's been really helpful for me. I used to do, you know, do handstands every single day for at least a really specific period of time because I thought, well, I'm going to lose the skill if I don't just, you know, do it every day. And now I do them, you know, a few times a week, but not every day because I know that I'm doing the things that I need to do in between that'll keep up my strength and keep up my mobility and keep up my skills. So that's been, for me at least, uh, Legree style Pilates has been really helpful. And I actually teach bar also, and just that kind of specificity and the muscles that it develops and a lot of the skills that we build and work with there, that's also really informed inversions for me. I'm not a CrossFitter personally, but occasionally my husband will get me to go to a CrossFit class with him, usually a kettlebell class. And a lot of the work that they do there is very specific for training for handstands. And then actually when I was writing the book, I was really into HIIT workouts, like high intensity interval training. And a lot of the little drills that you might do in a HIIT workout can be really helpful for building strength and endurance for specific inversions. So I incorporated quite a few of those and kind of made some little yoga tweaks and adjustments if and as needed in the book as well. So is that the main way that you see other movement modalities informing inversions is for strength and endurance? Strength and endurance and certainly mobility and flexibility as well, for sure. Yoga is already pretty good at, you know, enhancing those skills. I think it's probably, and balance, of course, too. I think it's probably one of the main or some of the main strengths, main reasons why people might undergo an asana practice or might start doing yoga. And so you don't, you wouldn't necessarily need to go to other modalities for that. I think it's more once you get specific with goals, like I want to do this, going to just a yoga class and all levels of vinyasa, you know, even every day probably isn't going to give you exactly what you need to build those skills. But as far as just general mobility, general flexibility, I think it can be pretty good with that. And of course, you know, different forms of dance, different forms of 
I'm definitely not a martial artist at all. I think I took one Tai Chi class and it was too slow and I thought I was gonna die of boredom. I'm so sorry for anyone who loves Tai Chi. It's wonderful, it's just not for me. But things like that I'm sure could you know, inform that as well, but that's just not my personal interest or experience. What I found is that even after doing yoga for many years, I was not aware of my actual shoulder flexibility and this is handstand specific. I mean, it's true for forearm stand too, to some degree, but specifically for handstand to get into the most stable position, it's really great to have good shoulder mobility and good shoulder strength. And for many years, I was just moving my rib cage and thinking I was moving my shoulders. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't till I trained with an acrobat that they have these very specific drills to isolate the shoulder mobility away from the ribcage mo- mobility. That was like a huge eye-opener for me, where I was like, I thought I was real flexible in my shoulders, and I was not. For sure. And I know a lot of people have done that, too. A lot of people have been have wanted to learn inversions, a lot of the yoga teachers, and instead of going to a yoga person, they will go to people who specialize in acrobatics and train with them and do the really specific drills and skills and things that they learn. And yeah, I do kind of think that's, I don't want to say it's missing from the yoga world because it's just like, that's not the reason why most people would go to a yoga class and it's not going to serve the general population necessarily. But I think that sometimes people you know, go to a class and they're like, oh, that person in front of me is doing a handstand every time they come to the top of their mat, or that person's finishing out class with this very impressive asymmetrical forearm stand. Why can't I do that? When are we going to learn that? And that's when, you know, people typically do venture outside of yoga. And the dirty little secret of the Instagram yoga world or those people who are busting out into handstand in the middle of class is that most of them did not learn handstand through yoga. Yes, so true, 100%. Yeah. Most of them were gymnasts or had another context where they developed the mobility and the strength where they were maybe ready to learn it in yoga class because they had the building blocks already. But your average person walking into a yoga class who has neither the strength nor the mobility, often they don't make a ton of progress in yoga classes. Why do you think it's hard to learn and teach inversions in regular yoga classes? I think there are a lot of reasons, but one of them that comes to mind right away is that it really is person specific. And there's a degree of customization that's needed because people do come from all different different backgrounds, all different experience levels. We have all different bodies, all different strengths, all different challenges. And there's not really a one-size-fits-all approach that's going to work for everybody. And that's a lot of what I focus on, actually. When I was writing the book, I did a couple little test groups with people, friends and you know, um, my husband was one of them and who were interested in learning a particular inversion. And it was, what's your inversion goal? What are your biggest challenges? What do you feel like is holding you back? And then what do you definitely not want to do? Like, what do you hate doing? Like I had one friend 
who had a goal to do a forearm stand and she said, please just don't make me do any knee to chest from down dog. I hate that movement so much. I know I won't do it if I have to do that. So getting that specific, you know, what's gonna make you entice you to keep doing it? What do you feel like is holding you back? For some people, it was a mobility issue. For other people, it was more of a mental block. Some people, it was, you know, just like, well, I just can't get my hips up over my shoulders. How do I do that? You know, little things like that. So we kind of customized and tweaked and looked at, okay, this helps with this and this helps with that. And in a general class, there's not enough time, there's not enough ability for one teacher to really address individual needs in all those ways. And I know, honestly, if I went to my local yoga, yoga studio at lunch and we just spent the whole hour, you know, just like tweaking every person's inversion, I, it would feel like such a waste of time. I'd be so bored. I'm like, I just want to move. I just want to breathe. And so that's a big reason. It's just you can't address all the individual needs at once. And I also think that, you know, yoga teachers sometimes might be a little bit resistant to those things because we do kind of elevate yoga. And not to say that this is wrong necessarily, but as above other modalities. And like, well, this isn't a physical practice. This is a spiritual practice. This is more than that. It's more holistic. And if you have that approach, again, it's just, and again, that's, I'm not saying that's wrong. That's a lovely approach to take, but there's just not necessarily the time and the space to get so granular and break down these inversions when you have so many other things that you have to cover. Agree. I think yoga teachers are trying to do a lot with their yoga classes. And a lot of times I think they would actually benefit from paring down. You could even think of it as a form of niching down of like, what is your focus? What is the most important thing for your students to walk away from in your classes? Because if you try to pack too much in, then I think it all gets watered down and people actually don't have as deep an experience of whatever, you know, like whatever it is that you're offering if you're trying to do too much. Yeah, absolutely. So your book is filled with like tons of exercises. It's really like a how-to book. And so you include a ton of different ideas and drills and variations. And so I'd love for you to share one that you describe in the book that you think is just really underutilized in yoga classes that you think would be very useful for yoga teachers to know about, for yoga teachers to incorporate into their classes but most people don't seem to know about it or do it. Yeah, definitely. So one thing that comes to mind right away is how do I get my hips up over my shoulders? Like that's not happening for me. And I have been, you know, fortunate enough to have been born with a very long torso. So that was not ever really an issue for me because my hips are always up over my shoulders pretty much whenever I'm I'm in a forward fold or, you know, moving in that general direction. But it was, so it was interesting to me to see what a block that was for a lot of people. And one little trick, I actually learned this from my friend, Allison Jirasi at first, was just gradually elevating your hips by, for example, in a down dog, bringing your feet onto two yoga blocks and then, you know, more yoga blocks and then feet up on a chair facing toward the wall and then facing away from the wall and kind of adding in that height and getting comfortable there and then gradually decreasing after that. So I think that just 
elevating your heels in down dog is a really simple thing that most people can do and that's probably underutilized for sure. So this is really interesting to me personally because I also have a long spine and I have a hard time getting my hips over my shoulders at the same oh, time. See, I have very Can I show limbs. you? Yes, please do. <laughs> okay. I mean, I have short limbs and a long spine okay. and okay. this is a trouble. So I think it might be fun. Let's see if I can... All right. Ah, oh, so hard. I can see that, yeah. Right? Yeah. But can you tell that I have a long spine? I totally do. I have short oh, limbs and a long spine. This is... Absolutely, I can. Yeah, I'm like, that looks familiar. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that the, honestly, that the stepping up onto yoga blocks or, you know, a chair, stool, an ottoman, anything might be helpful. That's what I would do for sure. I love this. So experiential. I mean, why not, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, and the other thing that's so funny is it may be like a hip flexor strength thing because when I have my legs on the ground, uh, I can do this yeah. super easy. Mm -hmm. When I change my orientation to gravity. Yeah then all of a sudden it's like my feet won't reach my wrists. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Look at this. Oh, the, this? like the little toe taps. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's actually Whoa. right there is a great drill. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, but that's a drill that can be really helpful to just train those little toe taps up to wrist. And you know, sometimes even doing like the opposite where you have your hands on the blocks and then tapping your toes to the blocks can be kind of a mm. fun first step. And just kind of mm. experimenting and seeing like, oh, what's the, what direction do I need a little bit more support in or what direction needs to be elevated versus, and it's kind of a fun trial and error for sure. Yeah, so I think the fun thing about inversions is they do flip your brain around and they force yeah. you to encounter your body in a different way and like examine it from a different angle mm -hmm. and say, why is that hard? Why does that work? And that doesn't work. So if you could wave a magic wand and magically influence yoga teacher trainings around the world, what would be one thing that you would either change or make sure was covered in yoga teacher trainings? Oh, I only get one thing. Ugh so hard. I mean, probably number one, honestly, would have to be scope of practice. I think there's so many really well-meaning yoga teachers out there that end up, you know, going outside their scope of practice, whether it's with like nutrition advice or, you know, trying to help someone through an illness or an injury and then end up cause. I mean, I know I've experienced that, you know, even from both ends of the spectrum as the student who felt like, oh, my yoga teacher said this, so I should stop taking my antidepressants, you know? And like, no, that was not a good idea. And then as a teacher, even a teacher who knows better, feeling like someone comes up to me and says, oh, hey, I have this pain in my hip, what should I do? And even though I know, like, intellectually what I need to say is I'm not a doctor you should you know check in with a medical practitioner and see if you have any contraindications you know check with them see what they say but there's part of me I'm like I want to help I want to help this person feel better and so I know the intentions are good but it's just like reining that little voice in so if there was anything it would just to be really clear about scope of practice and one thing that kind of I've seen coming up a lot lately too, especially when it comes to trauma, that as a yoga teacher, no matter how many trauma-informed 
trainings you've taken, it's not your job to heal somebody else's trauma. Like it's great to have tools to know like, hey, this could be something that maybe could be a trigger, could be harmful to some people who have experienced trauma, but that doesn't mean that you're healing it or fixing it. It just means you're trying to not make it worse and let the yoga do what the yoga does. So that's probably what I would say. And if anyone listening wants to buy your book or wants to find out more about your work, where should they go? My book is available pretty much everywhere you buy books. Um, All the major retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Target. It's also available on Shambhala, um, on my publisher's website. They're an imprint of Penguin Random House, so you can get it right from Penguin Random House too if you want. And you can also learn more about it and all those places. And, oh, you know, independent bookshops always like best place to get a book, of course. And you can find those online, your local ones. Uh, and then as far as learning more about me and my work, cathegberg.com. That's H-E, A is an apple, G is in girl, B-E-R-G is my website with all my stuff. And I'm at Cat Heg Burglar on Instagram, which is probably like the social media platform I utilize the most. It's my name and then L-A-R. It's supposed to be like an homage to the Hamburglar, but it's very hard to explain, but I can't change it because it's published in like every book I ever wrote now. So you're stuck with it. <laughs> yes, I'm stuck with the Hamburglar for life. So Well, Kat, thank you so much for sharing what you know about inversions and for reminding us that yoga can just be fun. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that's the message that came across because if anything, that's exactly what message I want to get across. This episode is part of a series with authors of recently published yoga books. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the series by looking above or below this episode in your podcast player. 